Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Nelson Spruston, Scientific Program Director and Laboratory Head at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Janelia Farm. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Spruston. Thanks, great to be here. So could you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided you might want to become a scientist? Sure. I grew up in a suburb outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and I always liked science all, all the way through school, including high school. And when I went to college at the University of British Columbia, I sort of thought I would probably become an engineer. I was most attracted to math and physics. But then after freshman year into sophomore year, I really found myself drawn a little bit more towards biology and chemistry, and I started not liking as much solving differential equations and triple integrals, mm. and I thought maybe I would change directions and become a doctor. And one of the things that entailed if you were going to go to med school was to do some lab research. So I did lab research in junior year and senior year in college, and senior year is when I really started doing some neuroscience research. Before that, I had mostly worked on gastrointestinal physiology, and I really fell in love with neuroscience senior year and decided that I would try to go to grad school in neuroscience. What kind of neuroscience research did you do as an undergrad? I worked in a lab of a guy at uh, UBC named Jim Miller. He was doing a lot of hippocampal slice physiology, and at the time, I was recording epileptiform type of discharges in hippocampal slices. And I found it pretty fascinating, and still do actually, that um, you know you can have this little piece of tissue, that, brain tissue that's alive, and it's actually doing something dynamic, even though there's no sensory input um, from the outside world. There's something internally going on in there. I was acutely aware early on that these slice models were not necessarily particularly good models of disease, but I, I got more interested in neurons and neural activity more generally. You've stuck with slices almost your entire career, is that fair? Yeah, that's right. We've branched out a little bit to do some other things that are not just slice physiology. Well, I can talk a little bit about that later on. But yeah, I, I've been working on slices for a long time, and I think it's a, a great model, I think, that has benefited neuroscience very broadly, work that many people have done in slices, I think has informed us a lot about how neurons work. When you, one of the things that you encounter a lot as someone who works on slices is, well, what does this have to do with what happens in vivo? And I think the simple answer is, if you think of the cell as a little machine, you know, you're studying how this machine can work. What kind of components does it have? What is it capable of doing? And even though it doesn't do the same things, exactly the same things in a slice as it does in vivo. All the same components or machinery is there. So you learn a lot about how the neurons do work. So you did your graduate work in Dan Johnson's lab at Baylor, where you began to study the electrical properties of hippocampal neurons. And you showed that the passive membrane properties of hippocampal neurons are determined at least in part by voltage-dependent conductances that are active at the resting potential and these and the different types and distributions of these channels underlie the properties amongst the three major classes of hippocampal neurons. Could you explain what the three major classes of hippocampal neurons are and what are the biggest differences between their membrane properties? Sure. So the three main principal cell types, the most numerous principal cell types in the hippocampal formation are granule cells of the dentate gyrus, and then pyramidal cells in CA3 and pyramidal cells in CA1. And all those three major cell types have 
many uh, distinct properties, including morphological differences. Granule cells, of course, are dramatically different from pyramidal cells, but even if you look at CA3 versus CA1 pyramidal cells, there are some pretty distinct differences between those two cell types. And it turned out that in recording from these neurons with patch clamp electrodes, that we discovered some distinctive differences in the passive membrane properties of these neurons. And I think the details are less interesting than the general concept that, at least when I was a graduate student, um, I learned that the resting properties of a neuron, you know, the, the properties, the channels that determine the resting potential, for instance, and the input resistance and the membrane time constant, fundamental properties that determine the way the neuron responds to synaptic input were all determined by channels that were completely passive, that is, they're just open all the time. And what I discovered was that that wasn't really true, that even those channels that are open at rest are also voltage sensitive. So as you change the membrane potential, even just a little bit, you get some pretty striking changes in the passive membrane properties of the neurons. So that was an interesting discovery. And then, as I said, there were also differences between the three cell types that highlighted to me that perhaps not surprisingly, these three cell types, which morphologically are very distinct, are also physiologically quite distinct from one another. And the thing that at the time made that work exciting is it was really at the beginning of uh, a wave of studies where people were able to use patch clamp electrodes and slices for the first time. And it was using a method um, now called blind recording, where you just put the electrode into a cell body layer, monitor the resistance, and try to form a seal on a neuron without actually physically, or without seeing the neuron and seeing the patch electrode. And it, it works very well. It still works very well. People do that in vivo now uh, all the time. And the cool thing was that uh, when I was a graduate student in the late 80s, there was a great interest in understanding the cable properties of neurons. And there were many studies that were, had come out in, uh, around that time studying cable properties of different types of neurons. And they were all done with uh, sharp electrodes, intracellular recordings with, made with sharp electrodes. And what we suspected and what turned out to be true is that when you put a sharp electrode into a cell, you essentially introduce a new pathway for current flow, a leak pathway. And that, then when we were able to, to record the membrane properties without that leak, what we found was very different from what you find with sharp electrodes. So given the, the other day at, at a lecture, I was describing to somebody how a sharp electrode recording works. I thought maybe you could also do that to help people understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so a sharp electrode is just like the name applies. It's a very sharp tip, and you literally poke it into the neuron. So you're poking a hole in the neuron. And, you know, not to disparage the technique, it's been a very powerful technique for many, many years in neuroscience. It still is. And to some degree, the membrane can actually sort of seal around the glass after you've poked the electrode into the cell. But nevertheless, there is uh, some substantial leak. And unlike patch clamp recording, where you have more of a blunt electrode with a smooth glass at the tip, and you form a tight seal between the glass and the membrane, and then rupture the little patch underneath the, the electrode to gain access to the inside of the cell without this extra leak pathway around the edges or the outside of the electrode. Now, now patch clamp recording certainly has its own set of disadvantages, and we had to take real care to try to mitigate those disadvantages. And one of the big disadvantages is that when you rupture this little patch of membrane, you now 
wash out the cytoplasm of the cell and replace it with whatever is inside your electrode or a lot of you know whatever is mobile inside the cell gets diluted out by the electrode contents and what we we were really concerned about that problem and to avoid that problem affecting the properties that we wanted to measure we used something called perforated patch clamp recording which had been developed at the time where you use poor forming antibiotics in the electrode you form the seal and then you let these poor forming antibiotics form pores in the little patch of membrane under your electrode instead of breaking the patch and that way you don't completely wash out the inside of the cell yeah yeah so you you went on to do a postdoc with Bert Sockman at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg. The Sockman lab is obviously famous for its development of whole cell patch that we were just uh, talking about. But the lab, particularly in the mid-90s, was a notable grooming ground for a number of important scientists of today, such as Henry Markram and Michael Heuser and others. So I was just wondering if you could talk about what the lab environment was like at that time. Yeah, that, that was a really exciting time to be in the Sockman lab. I mean, there were all kinds of great people in addition to Michael Heuser and and Henry Markham that you just mentioned. Um, Greg Stewart was there. He and I worked in the same room right alongside Jackie Schiller. She was there with her husband Itzik Schiller as well. Uh, Peter Jonas was there in the lab at the time. There was a whole group of people that were collaborating with Peter Seberg's lab studying the properties of AMPA and NMDA receptors. It was a big group. It was almost like a self-contained department. The whole lab was a very large 40-50 people group. Wow. And it was a really exciting time because there was a lot of new new method development going on. So in addition to just developing patch clamp recording, the thing that I got really excited about when I arrived there is Greg Stewart was for the first time uh, recording with patch clamp electrodes from dendrites. There was also another technique that, that was being used there uh, called fast application where a piezo-driven electrode was used to apply agonist to patches of membrane very rapidly. There was confocal microscopy being used to image calcium in dendrites. Fast CCD cameras at the time, the fastest CCD cameras on the market were being used in the second lab. So there was all kinds of exciting technology development and as a result of that, new results were coming out on you know a weekly or monthly basis and it was just a very exciting time to be there. So in 1995, you published a paper in the Sockman lab where you were the first to demonstrate that action potentials initiated close to the soma in CA1 neurons can propagate into dendrites in an activity-dependent manner, such that action potentials occurring sort of early in the train activated this backpropagation uh, to distal dendrites, whereas those that occurred later in a train or in isolation failed to do so. Sort of as an introduction, could you maybe provide us with some historical context about what was known about backpropagating action potentials at the time when you started investigating this? Yeah, so what was known was based on calcium imaging. And people in the tank lab, for example, and in the Johnston lab had filled CA1 cells um, with calcium-sensitive dyes and injected current to cause action potential firing and then seen relatively large calcium transients in the dendrite. So there was a presumption there that the action potential was invading the dendrite. But of course, calcium imaging is much slower than direct recording of voltage. So there was a lot of inference that was going on to try to figure out based on calcium signals what was happening to the membrane potential in the dendrites. And Greg Stewart was really the person who pushed this field forward by not only developing the methods required to record from dendrites with patch clamp electrodes, but also to record simultaneously from the same cell, from the cell body, 
and to dendrite. And so what we were able to do, Greg was doing those kinds of experiments in layer 5 pyramidal neurons, and Michael Heuser was doing it in Purkinje cells with Greg, and I was doing it in CA1 pyramidal neurons in the hippocampus. And what we were able to do is, again, inject current into the soma, elicit action potential firing, and then observe what was happening in the dendrites as far away as three, 400 microns from the soma. And that was, for me, one of the most exciting moments in my scientific career was the first time that I successfully did one of those double recordings at a fairly long distance, you know, a few hundred microns from the soma, and I injected a long current pulse, evoked a train of action potentials, and saw that the first action potential in the dendrite was quite large, but by the end of the train, the spike was almost, the backpropagating action potential was almost completely gone. And that was very different from what happened, for example, in layer 5 pyramidal neurons in the neocortex that Greg had seen. And it's just a very exciting thing in science when you see something and you realize that you're the first person ever to see, yeah. see that thing happening and to realize that there are some real meaningful implications um, for how the cell works. It's, and it's not rare that you do an the first experiment and suddenly the, the main point of the paper just sort of leaps off the screen at you. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a very exciting thing when that happens. So now that this result is sometime old, can you link for us this property of hippocampal CA1 neurons to the way that they process information in the hippocampus? Yeah, so it seemed obvious to us and everyone, I think, at the time that the backpropagating action potential was a way for the neuron to send a signal back to the dendrites and to the synapses about what was going on the output end of the cell in the axon. And one of the most obvious reasons the cell might do that is for synaptic plasticity. And I think that's still really a leading candidate for the function of the backpropagating action potential is some form of plasticity. I personally have a, a different view of what the backpropagating action potential is doing in terms of synaptic plasticity than others might, in, especially in the CA1 neurons of the hippocampus. But I think everyone is on the same page that those backpropagating action potentials are a way of regulating synaptic strength. So what would your different view be? So I think that the most widely held view in the field is that the backpropagating action potential is a critical signal for spike timing dependent plasticity. And I don't disagree that the backpropagating action potential is important for plasticity. I just uh, question the ability of backpropagating action potentials in CA1 as effective triggers of synaptic plasticity. Um, what we've shown is that spikes mediated by sodium channels can also be initiated in the dendrites of CA1 pyramidal neurons, and those appear to us to be much more powerful signals for the induction of Hebbian synaptic plasticity. For example, what you need to do to roughly double synaptic strength with the backpropagating action potential, you need to pair an EPSP with a backpropagating action potential dozens, if not upwards of a hundred times to get a doubling of synaptic strength. Whereas with a dendritically initiated spike, you can get that kind of a similar kind of increase in synaptic strength with far fewer events. And I think that's what the hippocampus really needs to do is it needs to change its synaptic weights pretty rapidly in order to encode information in an ongoing manner about episodic events that are happening in the life of the animal. 
Okay, so you just made this distinction about backpropagating action potentials versus dendritic spikes that are initiating in the dendrites. And this is a phenomenon that your lab discovered in the late 90s. Is that fair? We discovered it in hippocampal neurons. Others discovered it before us in layer 5 neocortical pyramidal neurons, namely uh, Greg Stewart and Jackie Schiller. So how did you and Stewart and Schiller discover that this dendritic spiking occurred? So you described very easily how these paired recordings in the soma and the dendrite, you can see that there's a potential which happens after the action potential is clearly going backwards. What's the experiment that showed that dendrites could initiate spikes themselves? Yeah, so if you inject current into the soma, then clearly the action potential is going to be generated near the soma, presumably in the axon or the axon initial segment, and propagate backwards into the dendrites. That turns out to be true also if you provide relatively mild synaptic stimulation that's barely above threshold for action potential firing, especially if you activate synapses pretty close to the soma, what you're going to see is a backwards propagating action potential. But even in those cases, individual branches of dendrites are generating spikes even before the action potential is generated in the axon. And so it's a very interesting and complex situation because these spikes that are generated in the dendritic branches don't propagate very reliably in the forward direction. And what happens instead is the spikes remain local to the individual branch where they're generated. They provide extra current to the soma, and they increase the probability of an action potential being generated in the axon. So you can still have this case where you get a branch of a dendrite that generates a spike. It fails to propagate forward. Now it triggers an action potential independently almost in the axon, and that propagates backwards. And it's these spikes that are generated in the dendrites that we think are so critical for the induction of LTP. So I wanted to talk about a different uh, kind of phenomenon that you more recently discovered. So in 2013, your lab described a new form of neural integration and firing that occurs in a subset of inner neurons called barrage firing. Could you maybe just describe for us briefly what barrage firing is and then how you came about discovering this phenomenon? Yeah, now we're, we're switching gears big time here because now we're talking about inhibitory interneurons instead of CA1 pyramidal neurons. But this is another instance in my scientific career where I was really stunned by a result, and it was a result that a graduate student in my lab, Mark Sheffield, first brought to me, and he said, hey, take a look at this. This looks really interesting. And what happened is we had a, a line of mice that had a subset of inhibitory interneurons labeled, and we thought the subset might be interesting for us to study. And so Mark started out doing some very standard basic experiments, just injecting current into the soma and measuring their basic electrophysiological properties. And one of the experiments he did was to inject different amplitudes of current into the soma to measure the spike firing rate as a function of the intensity of the current injection. Very standard thing you would do with one of the first recordings from a new type of neuron that you're studying. And so part of this protocol, he's repeatedly injecting current into this neuron and causing it to fire action potentials. And he occasionally noticed that the cell would just start firing like crazy, and the firing would long outlast the one-second duration of current injection that he was providing. In fact, it would, on average, last for about a minute. And he was very careful about it, and he at first was concerned, I think as many people would be, that this was a sort of an abnormal response, and that the cell was somehow unhealthy, or was dying, or he was losing the recording integrity of the recording was compromised. But he just waited for this firing to dissipate, and it takes about a minute or so, and it stops firing, and then he resumed injecting current into the neuron. 
And what he realized is that he could very reliably and reproducibly induce this form of barrage firing over and over again in the same cell. So the fact that it would stop and then you could uh, reproducibly induce it again with the same protocol made us realize that it wasn't the case that the cell was dying, that in fact it was responding to the stimulus. And the amazing thing, well, there's a few amazing things about it, but one of them is that in order to get this to happen, you have to stimulate the cell with hundreds of action potentials over the course of minutes. And somehow, it appears to us that the cell is actually integrating action potential firing over this very long duration. It's almost counting its own action potentials, and when it gets to 300 or whatever, it flips into this barrage firing mode where the action potentials fire continuously for about a minute on average. So do you believe that this kind of firing is mediated by a single cell, or through some communication with lots of other cells in the slice? Well, we think there's some communication going on. We did a lot of pharmacology to try to understand what was going on with this barrage firing. And among the few things that we could find that could block this induction of barrage firing were inhibitors of gap junctions. And these are really messy, dirty drugs with lots of side effects. But we used a couple of different variants of those drugs that have different side effects. And so, at least circumstantially, it looks like gap junctions are somehow involved in the induction of this barrage firing. And gap junctions are obviously mechanisms that allow cells to communicate with their neighbors, implying that it might not be a completely cell autonomous function. However, there seems to be no rule for conventional chemical synaptic transmission. We can block synaptic transmission in all kinds of ways and still get this barrage firing. So. We're now in the midst of trying to unravel the mechanisms of this barrage firing, and it, it's, it's difficult, but we have some leads that we're pursuing. So the only other phenomenon that I know of that sounds similar to this is something that was reported in cortical slices under some kind of muscarinic activation that you could get layer 5 neurons in entorhinal cortex to persistently fire after you stimulate them. And in that case, I think it was calcium dependent. Is that true for inner neurons or not? So the finding that you're referring to is from the late Angel Alonso's lab, and it, that was a really fascinating paper also. And there are some similarities as well as some differences in the form of persistent firing that they described. One of the differences is that in the inhibitory interneurons that we're studying, the action potential firing during the barrage firing is all coming from the axon far away from the soma. So this is another really fascinating and unique aspect of this form of firing is normally we think of synapses depolarizing dendrites and depolarizing the soma so that the action potential can be generated in the axon initial segment. In this case, there's absolutely no depolarization requirement for the dendrites and the soma. In fact, we can voltage clamp the soma at negative potentials and still induce this barrage firing. You see this really weird situation where you're holding the membrane potential of the soma at minus 80 and the cell is firing away and these are action potentials that are invading from the distal axon. So you ask about calcium and the role of calcium in the mechanism and the answer is yes, calcium is involved. So there are ways for us to manipulate calcium and block the induction of the barrage firing. But the really surprising thing is that we can buffer calcium in the neuron and still get the barrage firing. So what we suspect is that there's some sort of network activity involved and that calcium is required in some way in the network but is not necessarily required in the neuron.
So some investigators, including, I think, Albert Lee from Janelia Farm, and when I was a member of the Tank Lab, Chris Harvey observed this kind of phenomenon in some of his wholesale patch recordings from hippocampus, where you see these spikelets in Mm -hmm. uh, hippocampal CA1 neurons that could either be something like you're describing in which the axon is firing or maybe a gap junction, maybe one of these interneurons, or well, probably not interneurons because they're not higher, firing at high enough rates, but you're seeing maybe a axonal-axonal transmittance of an action potential. Do you think that that's likely happening? Yeah, so spikelets in pyramidal cells, when we see them in a slice, we generally take that as a sign of a spike that was generated in the dendrites. And we have evidence for that because we can record directly from the dendrite and we can see instances where you get a spike in the dendrite and the somatic recording reveals very small spikelet. In vivo, the situation could be somewhat different. So it's possible that there are gap junctions between cells and spikelet between CA1 pyramidal cells in vivo. So a spikelet is an indication of a spike in a neighboring cell that's connected by gap junctions. And some people, including Roger Traub's group, have suggested that there are gap junctions between the axons of CA1 neurons. And that's another reason why you can get spikelets in these neurons. So that, that's another distinct possibility. There's one other piece of evidence, actually from a similar experiment from a couple of different labs. One of them is from Andreas Dragoon's lab in Germany, where he's shown in active slices, that is slices that are producing dynamic oscillations, that they sometimes see spontaneous action potentials in CA1 cells that arise from very negative membrane potentials, suggestive of action potentials starting in the axon. Any action potential that starts in the axon far away from the soma can fail as it propagates backwards and generate a spikelet. So that, that's another possible reason for seeing spikelets in those recordings. So when an action potential fails to propagate backwards, you'd still expect a sort of passive version to filter down the axon? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what the spikelet is. So at some point, active propagation fails, yet you see a small indication of the spike in the form of a spikelet for some recording situations. We've done some computational modeling of this, and it's really quite stunning, actually. You can model a situation where action potentials are generated in the axon far away from the soma, they propagate back towards the soma, but they fail, let's say, 100, 200 microns from the soma, and you don't see anything at all in the soma. So it is possible to be recording from a neuron in the soma, which is silent, and have, still have the action potential generating spikes that you just can't see. Hmm. What do the simulations like that predict the width of such spikelets should be? I guess my intuition would be that the width of the passively propagated spike would spread out over time. They do spread out, so they get a little bit broader than, you know, an action potential is a couple of milliseconds and spikelets maybe three, four milliseconds wide. But the reason that you don't see much broader spikelets is the amplitude attenuates so steeply over distance mm -hmm. that at distances where you would expect them to be really broad, they're also really small and then yeah. you just can't see them anymore. Gotcha. And finally, could you just give us a preview of what you plan to talk to us about in your lecture at Stanford? You know, it's interesting what I'm going to talk to you at Stanford. It comes full circle all the way back to the first question you asked me in this interview, which is work that I did as a graduate student on differences in the properties of the principal cell types in the hippocampus. And something that we published a little over a year ago now is a finding that a class of neurons that has always been considered to be one cell type, that is the CA1 pyramidal neuron, we have evidence that there are actually at least two different types. In the population we've recorded from, they actually cluster 
into exactly two different types. And we showed that these two cell types have very different properties, physiological properties, morphological differences that are subtle, but then when you record from and reconstruct enough neurons and do a cluster analysis, you can really see the differences between them. And these neurons are actually projecting out of the hippocampus to different targets. So it's evidence for the existence of parallel pathways within the hippocampus. And in fact, these two cell types are also modulated and have very different forms of plasticity that involve the activation of cholinergic and metabotropic glutamate receptors. So this is coming back to a theme that I think is very, very important and really taking off in neuroscience now, which is what are the cell types in any given neural circuit? Often uh, what we think of as one cell type may actually be a collection of multiple cell types. And we can get at that with things like careful morphological and physiological analysis, but we can also get at it by trying to understand the transcriptional fingerprint of different types of cells. The work is not quite ready to present in a full seminar, but towards the end I'll tell you a little bit about some new work that we're doing in my lab to try to understand hippocampal cell types from the point of view of transcriptional profiling with RNA-C. There's one other new thing that I think you will be quite interested in, which is the array tomography. We've <laughs> talked about that before, and yeah. uh, we're making some progress on array tomography, and postdoc in my lab has some very beautiful results with array tomography. Cool. I'll look forward to that. And in closing, we'd like to do a series of shorter answer questions. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean yourself specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, make sure you're doing something that you love doing and that you're not just doing it because it seems like you should do it or you need to get a degree. Just do it because you love it. So can you think of something that you did that uh, <laughs> you wish you hadn't because you <laughs> didn't really love it? I actually can't. I landed in a good place in part by sheer luck, I think. I, I ended up going to graduate school almost on a whim, but it was a whim that was inspired by passion for something that I was doing. And I went to graduate school, I went to Dan Johnson's lab at Baylor without ever even having visited there. I just, you know, applied, got accepted, showed up because I had read his work and I loved it and I'd spoken to him on the phone and it seemed like it was a good fit. And I just went there and I threw myself into the work the first few years, things did not always go smoothly, but I believed that what I was doing was important and that eventually it would work, and eventually it did, and I really enjoyed my time in Dan's lab. Then I moved to Bert Sackman's lab, and it was, as I mentioned earlier, super exciting time, and I've always just been totally motivated by the science. I just loved doing the science. Doing experiments and getting results excited me. I couldn't wait to do the next experiment because I wanted to learn more and more. And it never has seemed like work to me. It's always seemed like fun. And I think that I consider myself a very, very lucky person to get to do something every day that I consider to be fun. I don't do experiments myself anymore, but I get to talk to all kinds of people who are doing experiments and uh, hear about what they're doing, and that's also fun to me. So what was your favorite and least favorite thing about living in Germany, apart from the science? My favorite thing about living in Germany was learning a new language and experiencing a different culture. And what was the least favorite thing? I think the, my least favorite thing is I would say that living in a country where you're not a native 
speaker of the native language is difficult. It's difficult to really crack into the society. Your closest friendships end up being other English-speaking people. My wife and I were fortunate. We made some good friends who did not speak English, who only spoke German. So that was special. But outside of that close friendship with one other couple, it was difficult to feel like you were really part of society. You know, you've always felt a little bit like an outsider. So can you recall what the first experiment that you ever did was? Just what the first thing that pops into your head. Don't worry about making the definition too strict. Oh, the first experiment that I ever did was when I was working in a lab studying gastrointestinal physiology, and I was studying the contraction of smooth muscle in the intestinal walls. And it was a, you know, we had to dissect out guinea pig ileum and suspend it in vitro. And then we would add peptides to it and measure the force of the contractions. Hmm. And I thought that was really cool to, to just be able to add a substance to a bath and then see the muscle start contracting and actually be able to measure it. That was uh, my first, the first experiment that I did that, that really excited me. Huh. That's eerily similar to the first experiment Tom Schwartz ever did. We just interviewed him like two weeks ago. So anyway, it's funny. Wow. Okay, so thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Spruston. Thank you, Forrest. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Rainer Friedrich, a senior group leader and professor at the Friedrich Meischer Institute for Biomedical Research. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our new website at www.neurightwest.org.